0: Live. Live from to New York. This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast Wait for the win. he me. me it- Here's your host, Mike, Mike Phillips. Phillips.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just
0: End the Suffering podcast featuring New York sports talk from a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. got a good show for you this week. We are still social distancing on the podcast, but sports are starting to come back. We did have NASCAR come back last weekend. I'm not going to go NASCAR today, but we are going to talk about some golf. Our golf guy, Dan DeMartini, will be on the horn in just a bit. We are going to talk about the return of the PGA Tour coming in a couple of weeks. Talk to him about some of the protocols the PGA has put in place to address social distancing, some of the things about testing, player safety, the new calendar, all that good stuff coming up with Dan just a bit. I'm also going to dive into some of the more logistical legal concerns. Our legal guy, Phil Frieta, we are going to break those all down in the podcast as well. Pop culture this week, the great Alan Austin is here again. We're going to have a golf movie discussion. We're going to talk about the Two classic golf movies, Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore. Which one do you think is better? The pros and cons of both movies. We'll discuss all that in just a bit. But I'm to get us started a bit with some thoughts on the NHL. We haven't heard from them in a minute, obviously, since their season was paused due to the coronavirus situation. I feel like we've had updates about the NBA and MLB pretty much every week. We feel like we've heard something. I mean, right now, the latest, as of record times, the NBA is zeroing in on Orlando as the campus hub, whatever you want to call it for the rest of their season. MLB is still sorting out whether they want to fight over money in public and the health stuff. That's all going on. But the NHL is making progress of their own. The current plan for the NHL appears to be an expanded playoff system. 2014 will make it, 12 in each conference. And the league will basically split itself into two hubs one for the Western Conference teams, one for the Eastern Conference teams. The logistical model here is the assumption that the players come in, teams come in, you basically have a play in round of teams five through 12 are matched up in best of three, best of five, Sylvia Tournament series. So let's say in the East, the top four seeds will get byes. I believe at this point, it's it's Washington, Tampa Bay, Boston, and I want to say, it's I think it might be Philadelphia at this point. I'm not sure who the fourth one is, but fifth seed in the East, but the 12th seed in the East, six would play 11, seven would play 10, eight would play nine. They play their series, knock out those teams. Then you have your Eastern Conference playoffs all take place at one site. Same procedure for the Western Conference. At the end of it, The two teams that are left standing go to one site, play off the Stanley Cup, all this obviously with no fans. And this model is interesting because it is fair to teams who were in the playoff hunt when the season was put on pause but not get a chance to obviously finish the regular season and make a full push. The Arizona Coyotes, for instance, were four points out of the last spot in the West. They still had about a dozen games to go. Now they will actually get a chance to be in the postseason and have a chance to play for the Stanley Cup. This model also does well for the league because it brings in some of the bigger markets in the league who will not make the playoffs ordinarily. Your New York Rangers, your Chicago Blackhawks, your Montreal Canadiens. Those teams would have all been out of the playoffs if the regular season concluded, most likely. Montreal, Chicago definitely would have. The Rangers were trending in the wrong direction. Remember at that point, Chris Kreider had broken his foot And the Rangers are struggling to find their way without him. Now, you're looking at a spot where they get in, and you never know. Maybe you get hot, get in, yeah, and go on a run and maybe playing for a trip to the Eastern Conference Finals. Is it the most fair model out there? Not really. Is it fair for the East 5C to deal with Montreal and possibly have Carrie Price steal the series? No. But nothing about this setup is fair. This is doing the best they can to generate fan interest, get some extra revenue. That first round will probably help fill those local TV contracts for a lot of the markets where a lot of these teams say you have to air a certain percentage of games or a certain number of games to avoid paying back certain money. If you give the network's inventory, like MSG would kill right now to have some Ranger games on, even Islander games on. You do this, you bring these in. It's not going to be like the NBA where they're, not, I think they're talking about bringing every team in for finish up some sort of a regular season. And we don't need that at the NHL. We don't need the Devils to come back. We don't need the Red Wings to come back. We don't need the Senators. Those teams were god-awful. Let them stay home. Bring the teams you need to in. And then make quick work of getting rid of them and get through the playoffs and get to next season. Next season, obviously, will probably delay because like almost all these leagues, the NHL is very dependent on its gate revenue, and right now they can't get any. There's going to be no fans at this thing, wherever they are. They might push next season back until December because right now there's concerns about a second wave of the virus basically peaking right around flu season, which would be a disaster. If, you're start, if you start the regular season in October, play, a, play three weeks, and then you're off for three months. At least if you put it in December, Maybe by that point you're past a potential second wave and you're closer to a point where maybe you have a vaccine, maybe you're getting fans in the building in some capacity. That's all stuff you could conceivably watch and be aware of down the line. NHL, there is a lot to discuss. We'll be talking hockey next week on the podcast. Our guy Pete Considor will be coming back on. We will talk NHL, where the season wrapped up at, at that point, where we were at the end of the regular season get his take on the hub model all of this good stuff coming up then but up next we'll talk some golf with D. martini right after this many doubted we'd ever see it but here it is the return to glory All right, we are back here on the Just End the Suffering podcast. You guys heard Jim Nance calling Tiger Woods' winning shot the Masters last year. Masters to be a bit later than usual, but golf looks like it's going to be one of the first sports on the way back. We did get NASCAR back last weekend, but we have golf coming in two weeks. So joining right now to talk about the state of the game, uh, our golf guy on the podcast, he works the PGA Tour, Dan Martini is here. Dan, welcome. How are you?
2: I'm doing well, Mike. I'm like a a podcast regular at this point, but I love being back to talk about golf because for those of your listeners that like golf, uh, it's it's great to have it back. It's a great time of the year to be watching, and um, there's a lot of exciting stuff ahead. Um, And obviously, it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out in this new global sports landscape. So good to be here.
0: Yeah, it's good to be here. It's good to talk to you about golf, which I mean, we're at of date recording we're about two weeks away from the first major event coming back for golf. And as if I mean, it's got to be interesting for the idea of golf that they're going to be one of the first sports fully resuming playing after the COVID nineteen shutdown. Because uh, obviously so you're still waiting on on the professional sports, baseball, basketball, the NBA, NASCAR is back, and NASCAR has is kind of regionalized. Golf is something that has global appeals, so it's got to be interesting to be one of the first back.
2: Yeah, you know, when you when you think about the other sports, um, especially the other televised sports, right? You know, golf, tennis, bowling, um, those are the kinds. And NASCAR, obviously, the sports where it's, it, you know, basically individual, um, you know, focus. Uh, there's a lot of ways to, to make it safe to come back. And so when you, you know, I don't know about you or, uh, any of the other listeners, uh, if they've been out to, to, you know, swing a golf club or you know, swing a tennis racket, it's something you can do basically on your own uh, and do it in a really safe manner. And obviously, there's there's plenty of acreage out there uh, for us to spread out and and keep the players so that they're only interacting with, um, you know, their specific equipment um, and, and doing so in a very clean, safe way. So. It's great to have golf back. It makes a lot of sense for us um, to to do so. And there's been a lot of effort behind the scenes to make sure because we are really the guinea pig at the PGA Tour, uh, you know, other, other than NASCAR, uh, to get back out uh, and get our, our players in and out safely and uh, make it an enjoyable experience for people watching their fans of the game.
0: Yeah, he ran into the fans. is a good point because, obviously, at this point, the tour has basically said that at least for the first month back, there will not be any fans at at the tournaments themselves. Obviously the players and the broadcast personnel and tournament officials were necessary to run the whole thing. Is there a hope that, you know, at some point down the line, maybe we can have a reduced capacity of fans coming to the actual courses, or is this more of a long-range setup here where you think, oh, we're going to be doing just turn the course into TV studios, basically? There's always
2: hope. There's always hope for that. Um, no one, you know, we are we are so far away from being able to consider that as you know the com- the country at large really hasn't even completely opened up. So to just put you know thousands and or hundreds and thousands of fans out there at a time, um, all trying to spectate around a certain golf hole is just way too far out of out of the realm of possibility at the moment. But there's always hope. You know, we want, we want eventually to get back to normal. That's the best, the best way to experience golf. I, we, you know, obviously watching it on TV with your friends and family is incredible, but it's, it's also great to really go out there and just see how special the golfers are um, on the PGA tour and what it takes, the precision, the, the execution, the, the thoughtfulness that it takes to do so uh, and, and play and win on the PGA tour every week. So, yeah, we you know we we are uh, we are a fan based organization. We are fan first, um, and and that is the motto. Uh, we we want to put that experience out there for everyone. So yeah, as soon as we and and elected officials and and various various governing bodies determine that it's safe to do so, uh, we will try to trickle fans back in, and and it would be great to do so. Um, you know, ideally, would, would the fall be a time frame that you could say we're looking at that? Yeah, absolutely. But we just don't know. You've got to take it a week at a time. And we know that for the first this first few events, um, it's not a possibility. Uh, we've got to just make things safe first uh, and and go from there. So, yeah, there's always hope to, to bring the fans back this season. Um, but right now, we're just not there yet.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It's a smart way to do it. Just, you know, get make sure you get your kinks out of your system. Make sure you have the people who are actually running the event, and the players themselves being safe. And obviously, you're coming into basically at this point of the year, you have a lot of events on the calendar. They've lost two months plus of golf at this point with the all the cancellations and stuff. And we know the open championship has been pushed off for you. We know it's not coming back. Is there plans to rework some of these events that have been postponed into the calendar or are these things worth waiting for next year on some of them? You know, the, the,
2: there is a revised calendar out now. Uh, so if you go to pgatour.com, you can find that information. Uh, you know, obviously, the Masters has been moved to November. Um, for the most part, the tournaments that could be rescheduled and reworked into the calendar were. Um, there are several that just had to be pushed off just because you have to still get through the FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, and, you know, the, unfortunately, there's just not enough weeks to make it up this year. So the events that have been rescheduled were very thoughtful. Uh, there was a lot of planning. There's there's many, many departments and many really smart people uh, that were involved in looking at the schedule and working with our title sponsors and the official marketing partners to determine the best schedule to make it so that it's competitive for the remainder of 2020, and we are right back you know, into that full strength schedule for 2021. So um, if you go to pgadrawer.com, really take a look at this to kind of see what was done in order to get the most competitive remainder of 2020 possible for the players. So it's going to be um, a lot of fun if you look at this new schedule, because it's great. There's always amazing events that go on in the PGA Tour, the stories, the people that come out of nowhere and make a name for themselves, the recurring stars that are, you know, going out and winning multiple weeks in in electric fashion, you know, really in cool ways uh, of coming out of nowhere. There's always amazing finishes if you're watching golf on Sunday, but I will say that there's going to be this added emphasis right now um, from all the players who are going to say, wow, we've got, you know, now the shortened season. Here's a chance for me to get hot at the right time. And there's going to be big time events. And plenty of money on the line for me that if I can just get my game organized for a couple months in a row, man, I could really change the course of my career. So everybody's going to be gunning to to come right out and, and win right out of the gate. So it's going to be a really, really fun event to watch uh, starting at Colonial in two weeks.
0: Yeah, Colonial is the lead-off. Obviously, we still have three majors to do on the county. You said the Masters is in, is in November. I really, believe the PGA is in August, and the U.S. Open is now in September in New York. You have the FedEx Cup playoffs in there, the Ryder Cup. It seems like all these things are going to be very condensed. I feel like it's going to be a lot of action right on top of one there for all the players. Uh, you know, in, in, in this,
2: this world that we're in right now, which, you know, you turn on the nightly news and you're hearing just awful story after awful story with a little bit of hope, I can say if you're a sports fan and hopefully everything in your life is going okay from the health and the safety of your friends and family. And if you're just, if you can simplify it down to you're just worried about, you know, what's going to happen in in sports going forward. If everything goes according to plan, it is going to be an amazing fall filled with crazy events from all sports. Um, You you can, you're going to have, you know, four or five, six different live sporting events with, um, just incredible players and contests going on all through the fall. So for me, it's kind of exciting to think about, you know, all of these incredible golf events going on at the same time as potentially basketball, baseball, and hopefully hockey and the NFL all at the same time. I mean, it's a sports fan's dream uh, to be able to have all of those. You're going to have four. You got to have like a minimum of two screens, possibly four screens going at once. So, that, at least for me, is exciting. Um, you know, hopefully, with that said, you know, the country is back to full strength and, and we're, you know, recovering uh, the best way possible.
0: Yeah, I would agree. And obviously, I want to talk about some logistical things because I have our legal guy Phil Frey, on just a bit, talk more in deeper detail, some of the things that are in the plan. But one thing I've been curious about is obviously, there's, as you know very well, there's a lot of people who are usually on site for a PGA Tour event, even without the fans. Like, you have lots of people like, Running spot like sponsor responsibilities. You have people there for the tour. You have people there at the score. People for the clubhouse. So like, what kind of series have it been taken to reduce the amount of personnel who are actually on site? To promote that social distancing is so important to getting back to the way things, or at least a new normal until we have some sort of vaccine or cure for this thing.
2: Uh, you know, so so there it's going to be it's how we determined it. It's basically the PGA Tour is going to have essential staff only. Um, there will be for, from the very start of return to play, it'll be players, caddies, uh, but seriously limited um, extra, I guess, entourage. So family and friends uh, will not be there. Um, agents have still; they're still determining exactly who else can be on site. I think I heard the number, and don't quote me on this, but you know, essentially, they're looking at uh, between the player field, um, which is usually around 144 players. And staff members at large, the tour will need to be looking at a you know right right around or under four hundred people. With that number, they're able to space everybody out in in the safest way possible. Um, They're really going to be limiting no locker rooms. There's going to be protocols around the way that you show up to the tournament, who how you're handling your bag, um, you know where to go post round. Uh, you know, media center act. There, there's going to be limitations all over the board. So basically, the experience is going to be very isolated for the players and staff alone. you at no point I can imagine there being more than you know, roughly 20 people in you know, a, a, in a an area of one hole. So spaced out accordingly. Um, there's there's going to be a very very limited number of people out out there. Which is gonna make for a really interesting broadcast, you're gonna get a lot more features of the players really thinking through each shot by themselves. Um, they're not gonna be all over each other, it's not gonna be fans yelling, there's not gonna be as much uh, broadcast in 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 terms of uh, you know, kind of people, you know, quickly, you know, accessing the players. It's gonna be a very pure look, uh, of the players figuring out how to win on their own. So just from kind of a staff standpoint, yeah, you're you're looking at a seriously reduced number of people that'll be on site rather than the normal, you know, thousand plus there to to support the event, vendors, food, hospitality, all of those extra things uh, that normally go into a PGA Tour tournament. Not to mention the, you know, fifty thousand plus fans, a hundred thousand plus fans that will come through the gates on a normal week. So um, it's a it's an interesting dilemma for us. Uh, to work through to decide who is essential staff and who is not and and what and how do we how do we make sure that the right people are on site um to support those that are there um and and, and figure out exactly how many we need to send so it's going to be uh, a, it was a very conservative look to get us started at colonial uh, and we'll make adjustments week by week of what's necessary and what's safe and what's not so Everybody can – is the whole thing that BGA Tour's executive team is trying to determine, and you can see this in the return to action plan that went out. There's a press release if anybody wants to read that. Um, the whole thing is that the mindset that, that the executives have told the players and staff on site is to imagine, you know, practice social distancing as if you're, you're still returning – you're still acting as if you're staying at home. The whole stay-at-home order that went out. Um, that means as soon as you hit the ground in that tournament uh, town, that you're not going out to public places, you're not staying with multiple other players, uh, you're not staying with other staffers, you isolate yourself accordingly, no rideshare um, programs, no Uber, taxi, everything has to be very thoughtful in, in, your, in who you're exposing yourself to. While you're going to, to do your job, which is to play a professional golf tournament. So, we're really putting a lot of responsibility on our staff and the players that are going to these tournaments to have a very minimal impact on the local community um, so that the testing that occurs there as well uh, is done in a very efficient manner and that, you know, ultimately we, we don't, the goal is to have no. Uh, positive tests while we're out there. And, and that's always the goal is to do everything in a safe way uh, so that we have an amazing tournament uh, and everybody safely gets in and out of each tournament location.
0: Yeah, that definitely makes some sense. You mentioned the testing. It's something I was curious about, so like what is the like, testing procedure? It's basically like when they show up to the site, they get tested. And then if they, if they, somebody's tested positive, they t- they're turned away and sent home for two weeks.
2: Basically how it's going to work is golfers, and caddies, and basically all of the officials that will be there on site, um, they're going to have to complete a not only just a, a questionnaire, they'll also be thermal tested. You know, So I don't know if anybody uh, that's listening to the podcast has been to a doctor's office lately or even the dentist or wherever. Normally those places, before you come in, somebody is pointing the, the thermal uh, little radar thing at your forehead to make sure that you're not running a fever there will be, be either the nasal swab test or the saliva test will be admitted to you um, upon a, a site as soon as you arrive to the tournament. And now a lot of those tests you normally take a couple days to come back, but there's a focus to try to identify local labs rather than sending that off to some of the bigger laboratories for testing that take a little bit longer to get back. And the tour has a whole team that's been determining how to get those test results back quickly in a matter of hours rather than days. And in order to do that, um, they're basically saying, you know, the tours has a, this department that focuses on the, you know, return to action, um, plan, and they are able to do so with no impact on the local community resources. So the whole point is that when the PGA tour comes into town, it's not like, Oh man, let's so say, you know that's that's 400 more tests that are taken away from the public. That's not going to happen. The plan is that the PGA Tour has identified its own resources for testing, um, so that it is not taking away from local resources uh, for those that are that are not in need of COVID nineteen testing, uh, and they've made those arrangements and plans and and done so so that um, they've been very very thoughtful uh, about this return to to make it safe for the players and for the community. So that's going to be the plan. They are going to, they're going to, there'll be multiple sets of testing um, that will be determined. And, um, you know, it's very clear that if a player does test positive, it's not going to set as their private information. The tour does not disclose health information. So um, of a player. So if the player chooses to say, you know, I've, I've been, you know, removed from the tournament because I've tested positive, that's on them to announce to the public. Um, so, you know, you know, but that's that's anybody's private information. So, uh, but the tour, if if you do test positive before the tournament, you you know you will be asked uh, to you know to be removed from the tournament. Um, and if you test positive during the, the tournament, you will also be withdrawn from the tournament as well. So, every precaution is being taken, and the players understand it. I mean, no player wants to test positive and then go out there and potentially infect other people. So, you know, we're all we're all in this together and we're trying to, to do this for the betterment of the game and, and you know, society at large. So um, everybody's on board with this plan. The Player Advisory Council is, is on board with the plan. They were the ones that helped determine how we would do this in the safest way possible. Um, so the tours, you know, in, in a, has done just an incredible job to get us ready to go back to golf.
0: Yeah, I do see that it's all comes very thoroughly. I like all the details that are being thought. It's very encouraging to see. And my last one I want to ask you on is basically we got to have a little preview of some of the unique things we're going to see from the players themselves at Rory McElroy, at the Skins Tournament. Royal McElroy and some of the other golfers did for charity over the weekend. Basically, they were carrying their own bags, picking their own clubs up. We're going to see a new new take on the relationships between the roles the players and the caddies take in the in a golf tournament right now. So you want to speak to that a little bit?
2: I mean, it's going to be a really unique dynamic. And I think we're going to learn a lot about the character of each player. Um, It's going to feel a little bit more relatable for those that play golf and carry your bag and have to make some decisions kind of on your own. Um, Normally there would be some, you know, long, long, you know, conversations between a player uh, and their caddy before every shot to try to get the angle, the distance, the height, the, the wind factor um what did what did they do there when they shot that on a practice round the day before those conversations happen very close to one another um and you normally there there's a private conversation there's going to be plenty of times when a player's really just going to have to make the decision on their own um you know the caddies are obviously going to be at a distance uh that'll be a unique thing to see as well um and and some conversations can occur but that was last second. Oh man, maybe I take the seven iron instead of the six iron. And the the player's going to have to make that decision and that determination. And these, these guys, you know, they're so good. They, they, every week on tour, the greatest part of the PGA tour is that any player that's out there has a chance to win. There's, there's, you know, the competitiveness of golf right now is an all time high. And, and, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how guys who really rely on their caddies more often in the past than some guys that kind of know what the game plan is and really just rely on their caddy for some alignment or some yardage information. I'm be curious to see how certain players have to step up and how certain players are more comfortable doing it on their own. So we're going to get a really good view of the player themselves Uh, and how they view each golf course. So I think it's going to add in for a little bit of excitement to see, you know, if, if uh, Dustin Johnson is, is once again, putting his bag down and saying, "Mm, you know, maybe, maybe I go five iron here and see if it works. Um, I'm excited to see it. I'm just excited that the the guys are going back out there and they're going to get their chance to play and, and really push for an incredible playoff uh, at the end of the summer and uh, a really, uh, you know, as you said, jam-packed fall season of golf. So uh, it, it's it's been a long. It feels like it's been a really long time, but as you said, it's only been those two and a half months. But man, we're really ready to be back out there and watch some golf uh, in a
0: couple weeks. Yeah, it will be exciting, Dan. Thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I think you'll follow on social media about some of the stuff you're up to.
2: Sure. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at Out of Town Fan pod. Um, you can follow me, uh, on Instagram at, uh, DMART207. And, uh, lately I have been a little bit quiet because obviously there's been a lot of work going on behind the scenes to get this whole thing back off the ground. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Tours full team ahead here and we're really, uh, couldn't be more thrilled to, uh, you know, get this, be one of the first, sports back out there and started. We're, we're very confident. We've got really smart people in, in uh and making these decisions and, and uh I think everybody is just ready to have some uh sense of normalcy when it comes to watching seeing sports on T V um and not having to watch, you know, highlights of March Madness from nineteen ninety eight. So <laughs> which was cool, which was great, but I think we're ready for um, you know, the live stuff to happen again. So that's what, that's what I'm excited for. And uh, hopefully people that are, they're that listening to this podcast now know that this is going to be a great event. Um, and uh, it's going to be done in a really safe way. So hopefully everybody tunes in in two weeks.
0: Yeah. I'll be keeping an eye out for sure, Dan. Thanks again. Up next, we're going to take a deeper dive into the, the return to play questions. that are coming up on this as a result of the return to play plan. You can talk to our legal guy, Phil Freyta, about some of these things right after this. Right back here on the podcast, talking some legal stuff with our legal correspondent, talking about the legalities, some of the things that arise as a result of the planned return of golf a couple weeks. Our legal correspondent, Phil Fred is on the line today. Phil, welcome. How are you? Hi, Mike. Good to be back. Uh, doing well. How about you? Doing pretty good. I got to say, it's going to be nice that we actually have some sports back in this thing. And I got to say, I don't know about you, but I'm not surprised that the PGA is the first one back.
1: Uh, no, I'm not surprised at all. And and I, I assume you're not counting the UFC because I guess they're technically the first pack, but, but that's a little different. Uh, but as far as major sports, yeah, I'm not surprised at all that it would be the PGA. I think the sport is pretty well
0: designed for social distancing kind of by definition. Yeah, it is socially distancing very well. I don't really count UFCs. They've been going the whole time. NASCAR's NASCAR, like... That one made sense because, again, a lot of people are just in their cars and not interacting with other people. Golf, I think that there are a lot of positives here, but there are some things I want to dive into here. Because, number one, I think the first big question that has popped up to me in this whole thing is we've seen the model they put out there, this whole idea of, you know, the bubble atmosphere. We talked about when we talked about the baseball bubble plan a couple weeks back. Golf is doing it where basically you show up to the site of the tournament. You basically go from the hotel to the course and back. You're not really going around the, out in the town. You're not going to restaurants, all that good stuff. Do you think that what they suggested here, some of the things they're putting in here, is what we're going to see more when N- the NHL and the NBA try and implement similar ideas?
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that they're going to use golf as the the guinea pig. And uh, assuming it works out okay, then, then they're just going to copy it. Because like, why try and reinvent the wheel?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, the stuff that they're talking about the PGA makes a lot of sense in terms of, like, you know, you're in this hotel. Like, you have – this is your base for the week. Like, you don't need to be going out exploring the, the local area. Like, the food will be dropped off to you. You don't have to go over there. You can die in the hotel restaurant. We don't want you basically exploring a town. we basically – Increase, decrease our liability as much as possible. In potentially spreading a virus.
1: Yep, uh, it was. It seems like the most logical way to do this. Um, it's not not draconian, like what baseball was talking about. You're not separating people from their families or anything like that. But you're keeping everybody contained and minimizing contact. So that that sounds like a a good middle ground.
0: Yeah, and. This is something I also thought about earlier because it's something we talk about during the baseball. We're talk about putting a lot of players in the hotels. You have to pay the hotel workers to, you know, stay there, incentivize them to stay in the hotel, live there for while the players are there to distance, to basically decrease the risk of virus spread. Do you think it's something that made it, that these PGA like sponsors would pursue to keep the tournaments going? Because this is a much shorter time period. you are saying to your hotel workers, hey, can you stay here for one week while the tour is in town? Then you can go back to normal.
1: Yeah, I don't know how the tour is going to work this out with the hotels. Uh, I, I I would assume that there's going to be some sort of an extra pay, either for the hotels. Or I don't know if the employees themselves get extra pay. I guess I believe that a lot of hotel employees are unionized, so that'll give them a opportunity to try and lobby for more money. But uh, I would think that there's going to have to be some sort of a hazard pay system. Uh, but then I guess on the flip side. Now, if you're the PGA, you could say, well, who no one else is staying in your hotel, so you want business or not.
0: Yeah, that's true. And I wonder if the hotels themselves say to their employees like, hey, like, would you mind like staying here for the week that the PGA is here? Like basically from the Monday to the Sunday and you go back home on Monday. I wonder if that's something they would pursue with some of these employees.
1: Yeah, they may they may do so and some of the employees may say yes because they just especially if they're going to get paid extra or things like that. And, uh, you know, I think that there might be some sort of an understanding that the hotel needs to, uh, to stay in business.
0: Yeah, they do. Another interesting point, I, I spoke to our, our friend Dan Demarty earlier, who works at the PGA Tour. He talked about one thing in terms of get, travel between the tournaments. Dan, Dan was describing how the PGA is a system set up of charter flights going from one tournament to another. So if you were a golfer who's playing in back-to-back tournaments, let's say you're playing in Texas, the next event in South Carolina, the tour will charter a flight from one venue to the next, and they will bring you there on the charter, playing for free. They'll obviously check you for symptoms, make sure you're not carrying the virus or have like potential risk factors there. Do you like this model in terms of like bringing people from one venue to another in a, a secure manner?
1: Yeah. Yeah. If you, if, the tour can put up that kind of money. Absolutely, it's a far more safer way because again, you're minimizing contact. That's the whole goal here is minimize the number of people that you come in contact with. So uh, I think it's great that they can they can do that.
0: Yeah, that, that obviously works well for players who are playing in consecutive events. But like, what do you do for like these other guys like who are not who aren't playing like? Not they don't play every week. They like playing this event and then they're playing in three weeks. Like like what sort of guidance would you give them from a legal respect to say, hey, like here's what I would tell you to get to this event safely so that we're minimizing our risk factor here.
1: I mean it's it's it's
0: tough, but I think uh again
1: you want to try and minimize contact. So I guess I guess may I guess they have to fly commercial though. I don't know how else you do it. Uh, unless it's close enough that you can drive by yourself. Otherwise, yeah, you're you're flying commercial. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's what's important to realize here is that it's going to be impossible for the PGA or the MLB or the NF, NFL or the NBA or any of these leagues. They're not going to be able to entirely eliminate the risk. There's always going to be some risk that somebody's going to get sick. Uh, you're not going to be able to eliminate that. You just—it's just about how how contained can we keep that risk? And you know, the charter flights is a good way to keep it contained. And then for the other players, uh, I know they're going to be running a bunch of protocols involving testing and temperature checks. So we're going to have to just—that's what they're going to rely on. They—they can't—they can't eliminate the risk entirely.
0: Yeah, I would agree. The only way to limit the risk entirely is to not play anything until you get either a cure or a vaccine. That's just not not financially feasible for any of these leagues, just go that long without any events and generate any revenue.
1: No, it's not. And and frankly, I don't even know if it's good for for the country. Uh, I think the country's kind of starved for some sort of sporting event. And if we can put it on in a relatively safe manner, we understand it's not going to be 100% fail-proof, but if it's relatively safe, and I think that's what the country would, would like. And like you said, there's money there for the leagues.
0: Yeah, there's money there for the leagues. There are some also some players that have some unique challenge, which is anybody there's a lot of international players on the PGA tour who are not in the country right now. And as you know, and as a lot of people know, there there are these mandatory quarantine periods now, whenever people enter and exit the country to basically have to once you get up to a new country, you basically have to quarantine for fourteen days to ensure you don't have the virus. If you test negative upon arrival, you have to legally sit in one place until you are go through 14 weeks. Then you can socially distance yourself in society. Like this, like how big a problem is this for some of these international golfers who basically would have to show up two weeks before an event they're going to play in self quarantine, play the event that potentially you have to stay in the country or go back home and quarantine for two weeks on the other end.
1: Yeah. Look, it's not ideal, but, there's really nothing you can do about that. That's, that is a government policy. And, uh, so those players, you know, if you want to play in the PGA events, then that's what you're going to have to do. If you don't want to, if you want to play in the European events, then go ahead and play in Europe.
0: Yeah. It's tougher. Yeah. with It's tougher with Europe too, because you also think about Europe has so many different, like you're going to have the same issues wherever you go in Europe, because like the U S at least there's like a bunch of events in a row. If you're playing European too, where you would think theoretically you might have to quarantine for each country you go into.
1: Sure, sure. But uh, let's—I mean, you know—take some top international golfer like uh, Rory McIlroy, for instance. If, if Rory wants to take a shot at winning a, ma- a master tournament here or a major tournament, I should say, and uh, you know, the purse that comes with that, then he's going to have to put up with the quarantine. If he doesn't want to, then then he doesn't have to. But uh, it's a lot of money and a lot of potential glory to pass up for. for for, especially for those top players who who know that they really have a chance to win these
0: tournaments. Yeah, indeed. And the last thing I want really to really touch on today was this whole idea. Dan brought this up earlier is that like, obviously there's testing protocol and ideally we love everybody to get through every event without testing positive, but the odds are somebody at some point will test positive for the virus. The PGA has said publicly, obviously they're not going to out the, the individual who respect for privacy. And and that makes sense because that's like sort of a HIPAA kind of deal where like it's their choice to reveal whether they have the virus or not. But like, do you feel like there's any sort of legal holdups here? Maybe like we're in a place where a lot of these cities and towns want to sort of do contact tracing for like contact or spread of the virus. Is that a situation where maybe like if the PGA has a golfer test positive, you have a local municipality who wants to know, Hey, like where was this golfer going these last like two weeks? Like, is he how is, who did he come in contact with in this town? That's something you could see popping up.
1: Yeah, and uh, and and it's a good question because, like you said, uh, HIPAA is federal law, and it, it in the nutshell, prohibits you from disclosing medical information about people without their consent. Uh, and you know, whether or not somebody tested positive for coronavirus would be medical information, so that that's covered by HIPAA. Now, how that interacts with the contact tracers is pretty interesting. It's something I haven't even thought about uh, until. You just brought it up because I I guess in practice I would have the right to say I'm not disclosing that I tested positive for coronavirus, but maybe the solution there is we're just going to say a golfer tested positive and we're going to provide you with the places he was and the people he may have come in contact with, but we're not going to tell you who he was. Now, that's probably a middle ground position, but protects the golfer's privacy but gives the government the information they need
0: yeah it's going to be a certain dilemma see how they track it because obviously they can't reveal they're not going to reveal it publicly but like i think it's hard in some situations especially like if you're in the middle of a tournament and somebody tests positive in the tournament and they withdraw like people immediately will jump to oh he's got the virus even if like let's say he pulled out because he pulled a muscle in his leg and he can't he can't walk the course yeah exactly uh a little different yeah a little different interesting to see because i think some of these plans that they're putting in here i think are going to be served as some sort of guidelines for these leagues that have not come back yet because i know baseball we talk about this off the air they sent a 67 page health document to the player association while they're still trying to figure this out nba and hl still are working on their health protocol i feel like the golf model is going to be offer some sort of guidance at least
1: yeah i I think it's certainly always going to offer guidance uh and like i said at the top it's something that i think is going to be copied to the extent that it works and if it doesn't work there's some problems with it then people are going to say well this works that doesn't work let's fix what doesn't work but i don't think anybody's going to try and reinvent the wheel so whoever goes first is gonna they're the guinea pig so in this case it's the pga the pga is going to be the guinea pig now i do think it's important to note though the difference in the sport it's it's yeah, you know, It's a totally different sport. Let's just think about it. You're talking about golf. Now, you can play around at golf and not come anywhere near anybody. This is not possible on a basketball court. It's not possible on a hockey rink, and it's not possible on a baseball field. So it is a little different from that respect. And uh, it's something to keep in mind. And that's why, even through some of these lockdowns in most states, including even here in New York, which has been at the forefront of it, the golf courses are open.
0: Yeah, they are open, and they are able, places where you can practice social distancing. You carry your own bag, minimize the risk of people sharing equipment, no golf carts. It's been set up a long way. We just need to see where this goes. Phil, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Sure, thanks, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me on, and yeah, um am optimistic now, cautiously optimistic, I should say, that we're going to get start getting some more sports
0: back once the PGA gets going. Yeah, indeed. We'll get you back on the line a couple of weeks once we get more information. I was like the NBA and the NHL are closing in on their plans, or the bubble sites, what they want to do. We'll talk to you then once we have some more details about that. But up next, we'll go to the pop culture section. We'll start off talking some golf movies. I'll be talking the breakdown between Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore with the great Alan Austin right after this. All right, time to wrap up the podcast this week, talking a little movies, a little pop culture here with one of my new regulars, contributors in this pop culture rotation, the great Alan Austin's here. Alan, how are you? Good, Mike. Thanks for having me. Talking movies, sports, all my favorite things. I'm glad to be doing it with you once again. Yes, indeed. Last time we talked to you was during the last dance. We will not get into that today. I feel like I've ever kind of last dance out at this point, so let's talk some golf movies because I talk golf earlier in the podcast. It's a golf episode And I I think, you and I agree, I think there's only two real golf movies we have to discuss.
3: Yes, I mean, I'm sure there are some tin cup enthusiasts who would argue with you, but I think the two that come to mind for most people are the two we're thinking
0: of today. Yep. Caddy, we're going to do a little deep dive into Caddyshack, Happy Gilmore. Talk a little about these, and I say, I've seen both movies, you've seen both movies. Which one do you prefer?
3: Okay, now this is a loaded question. As a 90s kid, I was born in the late 80s, so my heyday of like comedy development was in the 90s, and as stupid as people my parents' age tend to think he is, I am a Sandler guy through and through, and one of those reasons is the great Happy Gilmore. Now, so I personally prefer Happy Gilmore. However, you can't deny the legacy that Caddyshack has and why it has it, because and I watched it very recently to re- refresh myself. It is just joke after joke after joke. And I'd say a good amount of them hit. It's not like those comedies from back in the day where your your grandpa said it was funny. and You watch it now and it doesn't quite hold up. Caddyshack still holds up. And it is really funny. But me personally, I am going with Happy just because I grew up with it. But I think the, the legacy vote goes to Caddyshack, if that makes any sense. I know it sounds like I'm answering both, but they're both great movies. I shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have to shade one under another. However, I'm going, if I had to pick one to watch the rest of my life, I'm picking
2: Happy
0: Gilmore. That's yeah, interesting. Because I would go the other way. i actually go Caddyshack because it's such a classic, as you said. You have, the characters are all well-developed. I mean, we could spend like half an hour talking about Bill Murray's quest to try and get rid of the gopher on the course. That's a great like subplot through the whole movie. We have the plots of the country of the country club uh, preppies. You have the, the established pro. All of these great characters weave in and out of, the, out of the plot. It's fantastic. Whereas Happy Gilmore, I feel like Adam Sandler does carry it, but I feel like apart from him and Shooter McGavin, I don't think the rest. I don't think the rest of the characters really stand up as well as the rest of the Caddyshack group does.
3: See, I I do think you have to loop Carl Weathers in with the the cast that does hold up, and, and and Julie Bowen I like too. So, but here's the thing: in Caddyshack, you've got four icons or three, I should say, three icons. Uh, Ted Knight's a very respectable actor who who made it famous on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, or, or really made his name on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. So when they brought him into that, they were using that kind of uh, in in terms of his popularity, but. You're looking at three guys, and the lore of Caddyshack is that of greatness. You've got Rodney Dangerfield, Bill Murray, and Chevy Chase. All of their parts were originally intended to be cameos, and the whole premise was going to be the the kid and his quest to get the scholarship, uh, and he had to deal with the Ted Knight character. But because of the improv and because of the, the star status, all three were written into expanded roles, and Bill Murray's character was originally not even supposed to talk. He was supposed to be kind of a Marx Brother like homage. And uh, once once Murray was decided, or once they decided to cast Murray, Harold Ramis Harold Ramis said, "Guys, this guy's got to talk," and he encouraged him to improvise. So most of what Murray did is improvised, or at least you know thought of beforehand by Murray himself. And I find it. Very interesting doing some research that apparently Chevy Chase and Bill Murray had an SNL beef from back in the day, which actually got physical back in 78. So when they filmed the movie a little bit after that, not only did they bury the hatchet, but uh, the three of them decided to write a scene together uh, with Murray and Chase, which doesn't have really anything to do with the movie other than just comic. It's comedy for comedy's sake between two greats and Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. So I guess for fans at the time to see Murray and Chase interacting in a scene together was even bigger news because they had a well-publicized beef with each other. So there's so much lore behind the movie of Caddyshack. And another one, I'm sorry, it's a wrong sentence, but it's stuff I'm passionate about. Ronnie Dangerfield, I believe it was one of his first movies. He really didn't know how to act in a movie. So Harold Ramis had to you know tell him action and nothing would happen so he'd say ronnie do your bit and that and that's what he took it okay time to start acting and dangerfield would just fly off the cuff with a bunch of stuff so like the lure of caddyshack certainly holds a bigger place in cinema than happy gilmore and i do think caddyshack is probably the the better film for sure 100 percent, no doubt about it but the original question posed to me was which one do I prefer? And it's only because that type of humor in Gilmore is probably stuff that I consider like as Sandler's like the guy I grew up with and all the Caddyshack people, Chevy Chase is one of my favorites of all time. Bill Murray's up there as well. And I think it's Bill Murray's movie. I do think his scenes as Carl, the the uh, groundskeeper, feel the show. And I do think both, films hold their own special place I think Caddyshack's a better movie but I think I prefer Happy Gilmore just because I'm a Sandler fan
0: now out of curiosity which one did you watch first growing up did you watch Gilmore first probably Gilmore first because I don't think even even if let's
3: say I was 10 years old because I was born in 88 Happy Gilmore came out in I think 96 so I was very young when it came out I probably saw it for the first time about 98, I want to say, like a couple years after it came out. So I was about 10. And a 10-year-old watching either movie is not going to get all the jokes. So even, you know, Caddyshack as a 10-year-old was probably a little bit harder to read than Happy Gilmore, if that makes any sense. So I probably had an appreciation for Gilmore first just because I was younger and didn't get all the jokes in Caddyshack.
0: Yeah, I remember, like, my. I actually saw Caddyshack first. I think, honestly, it's, like, the first impression makes a big deal with these two movies, and, like, I remember that when I was a kid that the scenes of the Gopher really got me, but then, as I've gone back and rewatched it a couple of times, I've gotten older, like, all the subtle humor is great in that movie, and now this is, again, this is, yeah. like, six of one, half dozen of the other. It's not like we're saying either's a bad movie. It's just it's a matter of personal preference, and, like, there are moments in each film that are iconic, like with Happy Gilmore. Like, everybody remembers the Bob Barker cameo and, Ad, and Adam Sandler is screaming out, and the price is wrong, Bob, at their Barker yeah. screws him up. Like, that's like iconic.
3: There's a lot of... I, well, first of all, if we're going by golf, I think Happy Gilmore has way more golf in it than Caddyshack actually does. Caddyshack only has a few scenes of golf. There's Chevy Chase at the beginning, where it's not really centered on the golf. He's just kind of teaching Danny how to like be the ball, which is the famous quote. And then you have the end, the end scene, the climax, where they have the two-on-two uh, contest. But Happy Gilmore, you literally see the evolution of a golfer in that movie. He goes from playing zero golf at all to learning the sport, and they have many scenes of golf, not only visible, but tying into the plot of the movie as opposed to just the end in Caddyshack. Uh, Happy Gilmore has to win tournaments. He changes the face of the PGA Tour, and you've got the big finale with Shooter McGavin. And if if we're going by golf standards, I think Gilmore is more of a golf movie than Caddyshack actually is.
0: Yeah, I would agree. It's actually physically seeing the golf. like Caddyshack's more about the country club that's set at, and the characters who were there and who were interacting with each other there. Happy Gilmore was really about Happy Gilmore learning how to golf. And here's my next point I want to discuss here, like, which villain do you feel like Posmore? Is it Shooter McGavin or is it Judge Smales?
3: I think Shooter McGavin is the better villain. And I think part of that is because the Judge kind of like, he's annoying more so than he is a villain. Like, he's a guy that nobody at the country club respects. They all don't like him. Even Chevy Chase uh, has the line about his father not liking him. And they were, they, they like ran the country club together nobody likes him he has no real power and shooter mcgavin doesn't have power either but i think when you're grading them on a curve you take the judge who is very annoying has a lot of money and is a laughing stock to the point where ronnie dangerfield's character just comes in and runs rough shot over him the entire time so i think he's more of a nuisance but shooter mcgavin is the pro's pro in happy gilmore and he is what's standing between happy saving his grandmother's house or not so you've got shooter who's a real pompous jerk same as the judge but i think with more to more at stake in terms of his actions than the judges
0: yes i would agree with that i also think just in terms of the i think the thing that helps happy gilmore's legacy is that like again it's so centered on like adam sandler as like happy gilmore is one of i think his better performances in that time period because like it's just such a fish out of water seeing him learning how to be a golfer. The physical comedy is great. And he just does such a good job of that character like being that character and, and getting in that robbery with shooter. That's just so much fun to see.
3: Yeah, and, and i you know, me and my, my friend and I often describe batting averages when it comes to comedies. Like a lot of comedies will have like a two fifty average. They'll have Dave Kingman numbers. They'll have a low batting average with monster power numbers. Where, like, the overall product isn't that great, but when it hits, it hits hard. I'll say that Caddyshack has a really good batting average, but not as much power. And Happy Gilmore might have a slightly lower average, but more power numbers. to put it in sports terms.
0: Yeah, ex- exactly like Happy Gilmore's swing. May not always be online, but when it is, he hits it very far. <laughs> exactly.
3: And I do think, like, I love Rodney Dangerfield. I think he's one of the best stand-up comedians. But I think him in this film is purely in there for Rodney Shock, just to see what he'd say and come up with in his comedian manner. So while I think it's all well and good, it really doesn't provide anything to the, to the plot of Caddyshack. And when we're looking at the plot of Caddyshack, we have to care about Danny and if he wants his scholarship. And the movie kind of cares. You know, the central plot of Caddyshack
0: is like the fifth most important thing in that movie to the casual viewer. So, do you agree with that? I would agree with that. It's always it's all about like what's Bill Murray doing with the Gopher, what's what's Ty, what's uh Ty Webb saying to to Danny, Dan, what's Danny up to at the club. What, what Danny trying to the scholarship is way down the list of priorities.
3: Right, and Danny in in general isn't a great person. Like he knocks up his girlfriend who he just cheated on. He, he does all these like scoundrel behavioral things, but Danny, you know, and I had to look up the actor, Michael O'Keefe who played him. Cause I did not, you know, recognize him. And apparently he did a couple episodes of Homeland. So he was in Homeland for a little bit, but it's really about, the SNL guys in Ronnie Dangerfield, Murray Chase Dangerfield. It, it, they are what drives that movie. And the plot is kind of loose at best. It, the audience does not care as much about the plot as they would in Happy Gilmore, where they're rooting for his grandma to keep her house.
0: Yeah, they yeah, you got a clear rootable hero in Happy Gilmore, which is the big help there because I mean to be honest, I think there are times that happy and cash, I root for the gopher.
3: I, I believe the Gopher is the uh, the good guy in that scenario with Bill Murray because they paint Carl as this kind of, like, lowlife. Like, he, he lives in Swallow. Like, he's just kind of gross. And this fun, lovable, dancing creature who's got great moves. And, he you know, he dances along with Kenny Loggins, and the audience is having a great time when he's present. So I do think Bill Murray is the antagonist to the Gophers' protagonist. But other than that, yeah, Ted Knight's an antagonist. Chevy Chase is a pro- Like There there, there, are some good guys. There are some bad guys. But I feel like it's blurred lines with all of them. And then in Happy Gilmore, Shooter McGavin is the bad guy. He does not have any redeeming qualities. Julie Bowen's a good person. And Happy Gilmore is kind of like this, like, we see it a lot in modern-day TV shows where there are good people who do bad things. And he's not a bad guy. He does a lot of crazy stuff, but he's a good person at the heart. And I do think in Caddyshack, it's more about we have the big stars on screen. We're going to have them do funny stuff. Whereas Gilmore relies a little bit more on its plot. As as crazy as that sounds to people who are listening right now, does it make any sense? Because talk me off the edge here if I'm just sounding ridiculous.
0: No, I think you're right on there. I think you've got the the point pretty well here. It's more of like, Caddyshack is a lot of like, oh, look, we have Chevy Chase, we have Bill Murray, let's see what crazy things we can have them do, whereas there's a more consistent storyline throughout Happy Gilmore.
3: I care personally way more about the plot of Happy Gilmore than the plot of Caddyshack.
0: I I would agree with that statement, and we will not mention Caddyshack, too. That is an abomination that will never be discussed in this podcast.
3: (laughs) No need to, no need to.
0: Yeah, let's I I think it's a good discussion on the golf movie. Since you're here, Alan, I want to Reason the concept we did last time you were on. We talked about some streaming playlists. We did five last time. This time I think we should do a three round draft this time. That sound good to you? Sounds good, Mike. All right, I'll give you first pick this time. Where are you going?
3: I'm gonna go with a show that I think is the probably the best show that I'm watching on television right now. It's a little bit of everything, and Breaking Bad fans will be very familiar. Better Call Saul. I hold this show in very high regard. I have, I got a late start on it just because I got a late start on Breaking Bad. And by the time I finished Breaking Bad, I was a little, I was a little uh, Vince gilligan out. Just not because I didn't like anything, but because Breaking Bad is such an intense show and got so much going on that I just needed to sit back and breathe. So I got a late start with Better Call Saul. And now that I'm all caught up, wow. You've got Bob Odenkirk reprising his role as Saul Goodman, and in this case, it's Jimmy McGill, which is not a spoiler. That is his name in the first episode of Better Call Saul. And you take all that Vince Gilligan world of Breaking Bad, and you kind of show a different side of it, where Breaking Bad, the stakes are high 100% of the time. It's violent. It's very drug-related. Better Call Saul is about the human element of the same world of Breaking Bad but different characters which presents a really cool dynamic where the Walter Whites of that world deal with all this crazy stuff all the time where the Saul Goodmans, they have different lives so they deal with things differently and it really shows Gilligan's range and the writing is so good and for those Breaking Bad fans who are like why would I not why would I watch Better Call Saul if it doesn't have what Breaking Bad has the fan service is in the Mike character from Breaking Bad, for those who are familiar, being the second build in the show and the second main character of the show. But the performances by Kirk, Jonathan Banks, Rhea Seahorn, Michael McKean, outstanding. The fact that McKean never won an Emmy for his work on the show is a travesty. Better Call Saul is my first show that I highly recommend, even if you've never seen Breaking Bad.
0: I was about to ask about that. I was going like, what if you're somebody who's never experienced Breaking Bad? Do you go, do it treat, and I know it technically is the prequel to Better Call Saul, to, to Breaking Bad. Do you feel like the experience is any less if you watch Break, Better Call Saul first and then go into Breaking Bad? You can watch Better Call Saul before Breaking Bad.
3: You may miss out on some of the, maybe what they're going for with certain things, but it will not take away from the quality of show
0: of what you're watching and it will work when you watch breaking bad down the line. That's good to know. So that's your first pick, my next, my first pick of the week. And this is one that the second season is an Amazon prime show it's just dropping last week. So, and I believe you are familiar with the show homecoming on Amazon prime. Correct. Yeah. So this show homecoming it is based on a podcast and like by gimlet media where basically they tell this story about a soldier who comes back home from this from war goes through this homecoming program i don't want to go too crazy in the plot details but it's very well acted the tv show adaptation first season has julia roberts in it as the main character stephen james as the soldier and a bunch of other noble names like bobby cannavale sissy spacek all that stuff There's a bit of a, there's a big twist in season one, which is awesome. And you will get a big reveal, a lot of fun stuff. And I'm not going to spoil it if you're not listening to the podcast because the podcast is going to be every different direction than the show does. Season two comes out. Julie Roberts is not back. Stephen James is. They do have some new characters coming in. They're taking the story in a new direction that was not covered on the podcast. I'm excited to see where they go with this. Homecoming season two, high priority. Watch season one first because you need that backstory for season two.
3: I was a big fan of season one, and season one was kind of those shows where you, every episode, not, it didn't make you want to see the next one. It made you need to see the next one because you needed to
0: know what was going to happen with this. It was very edge of your seat, in my opinion. Also very unique is that this is a half-hour drama, Like the episodes are never more than 28 yeah. minutes for a drama, which is very rare. And They do a very good job cutting the fat out and giving you exactly what you need. And I'm down for that. Yeah, because there's so much stuff to watch and they don't waste any time. I remember the first episode, I think one episode was like 17 minutes. I'm like, wow, they've put a lot of story in 17 minutes.
3: It shows you it can be done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's my message out there to whoever picks up the Marvel Netflix universe in the future. You don't need 57 minute episodes every, for 13 episodes. The story runs thin at some point.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with Homecoming, great pick. All right,
0: where do you go with your next pick?
3: My next pick is a show that I just recently got into. I, it's, it's been on my radar for a while, but my fiance and I have finally decided to give it a shot. And it's not quite what I expected, but it's still making my recommendation list, and that's billions on Showtime. So what you've got here is, first of all, when you think of Showtime, you think of shows like Homeland and The Affair and all these heavy-duty kind of things. You don't expect, or at least I didn't. I'm sure there's people out there who go Showtime, blah, 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 blah. But I was not expecting what, in my opinion, is a more middle aged, mature version of Entourage, which is what Billions is. And for, you know, take Entourage for what it is Billions will say it's a little bit more sophisticated, but it has some wacky B stories and it's got this incredibly
0: self-serving dialogue between all the characters. Now,
3: you know, Mike, have you ever watched Billions?
0: I have not. It's high on my list, though, because Damian Lewis is in there, and I loved him in Homeland. Okay. I'll just put it this way. Every character in Billions seems to know
3: every film, music, or historical reference ever. Ever. Every character. So there might be about five... 10, I'll say 10 being the most pop culture references an episode where the writers are just throwing out there what they think is cool and their characters all know it at all times. So it's kind of like, the, it, it's great for film and TV buffs, this kind of show, because you've got characters dropping references to insane, insane pop culture subtleties. But At the heart of it, it's a it's a game of cat and mouse between the Damian Lewis and the Paul Giamatti character. And as an audience member, you find yourself rooting for each of them at separate times, which is a really interesting dynamic. And if you're like me, them along with Maggie Stiff's character who plays Giamatti's wife in the show, it's kind of an all-star cast doing all-star things in a fun world that doesn't take itself too seriously. So that's why I recommend it. It's a very easy watch. It is an hour long, but at no point do you feel like it's dragging and at no point do you feel like it's a chore to watch. It's fun. It's it's a game of cat and mouse, but there's so much more to keep you interested because you think, oh, they're on season five. Do I really want to watch five seasons of cat and mouse? Without spoiling it, there are things to keep it interesting and not stale. So Billions with Damian Lewis and Paul Giamatti and Maggie Siff Three of the most fantastic performances on television. That's my next
0: pick. Yeah. And for Met fans, you might want to keep an eye on that show because the rumor one time potential owner of the Mets, maybe he's still getting the mix here. That show is based on Stevie Cohen. Oh, really? Yes. The, I think GMI's character is based on Steve Cohen. What was Steve Cohen's job? What What did he do? He's a head fund manager. Then it's going to be Lewis's character. That's oh, so a Lewis character. Then. My mistake. On yeah. Okay. So. Wow. So that's that's something for you Mets fans in there. Make make get a little bit of backstory on your on your potential future owner there. <laughs> well, let's hope I thought that fell through. It 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 fell through. But when they're selling a team, and right now there are very few people who have lots of money who want to buy sports teams. I got a feeling he might get back in the mix. Interesting. All right, let's go to my next pick. We're actually going to Netflix. We're going with an animation show here. This is actually something that aired on Nickelodeon back in the day. It is now back on Netflix. Avatar, The Last Airbender. Are you familiar with this show? I've heard it by name, but I've never seen it. I will say, when you first, like get the idea of a Nickelodeon show out of your head, this is actually a much, much, much deeper show than what it would appear on the surface. This show is actually based on... Like it's based on this like some of these myths in like Eastern culture about this concept of the Avatar. This is based in a world where there are people who can control the elements. So you have people who can control fire, can control water, control earth, and control air. There's one person called the Avatar who controls all four at once. He basically helps keep peace among the nations. Right now, like the storyline of the show picks up where this kid who is an, who is an airbender. He's been missing for a hundred years. As the Avatar. In that time, the Fire Nation has basically t- take, gone to war with the other three nations. is trying to take over the entire world. He researches. He tries to learn all the elements and stop the Fire Nation from taking over everything. It's a for a kid's show, they're a cartoon moments, but it deals with deep things. It deals with, like, genocidal war. It deals with death. We have characters in the show, like, die without explicitly being told it. It's great character development in there, and they, mean, they made a movie on the show that M. Night Shyamalan ruined, and I will never forgive him for that, but <laughs> Netflix is producing an a live action like adaptation of the series, this is why they have the animated product again. So if you want to get ready for that, I think it's gonna be spectacular. Watch the animated show.
3: Interesting, yeah. I don't know too many people in my circle that are you know fans of it, so it's nice to hear someone talk about it because otherwise I probably wouldn't have opened my eyes to it.
0: Yeah, because it's not like oh SpongeBob, Fairly Odd Parents, not one of those. It's a it's a deeper like like it's like a it's like a drama comedy. A dramedy. It's it's like more drama, I'll say. There are comedic gotcha. moments. The best dramas have great humor. Yeah, it's like, it's basically like a little, it's like each season is basically broken down into like 20 episodes that call it a book. So like book one is called Water, book two is called like Air, and book th- or book, or book three is called Fire. So like they're basically, se- it's a pretty serialized thing for a cartoon as well. Interesting. Oh, I'll have to give it a shot. I would give it a shot. What's your last pick for for this week?
3: Now, I I do want to give one caveat to my Better Call Saul pick. I said that watching it now will not interfere if you hadn't seen Breaking Bad. But the the last season's coming up, and I can't guarantee that after the last season, that will remain the same. So I just want to put that disclaimer out there. But my third pick is a Hulu show starring SNL's A.D. Bryant called Shrill. Now I'm sure there are many people out there who have not heard of this show. It's very low key, it's very real, it's very honest. And it's about the AD Bryan character lives in Portland working for a website as a as a as a journalist. And it just goes through her day to day, you know? It just goes through, you know, her trappings as a woman in Portland trying to make it, navigating the dating. her work life with her overbearing boss played by john cameron mitchell who fans of hedwig and the angry itch will know very well and it's just a really like inch hedwig and the angry inch my diction was not clear i want to make that very clear inch but um so you've got her just living her day-to-day trying to navigate, you know, her self-worth when it comes to dating and her her self-image. And it's a very real and honest show. And for anybody who has a heart, it's just like really nice to take in and see what other people's lives, unlike your own, may be on the day-to-day. Because this show does not really dive into anything crazy or extraordinary. Everything is very real, honest, and it's funny and well-written. So on Hulu, I recommend
0: Shrill. Very interesting. That's like I'm usually into, but I definitely could be interested in checking something like this out. And I will say I may have to get another Hulu subscription. The last time I watched Hulu was when Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three was on. A long time ago. It was a long time ago. I watched that I basically hopped right out. I may have to get back in now that it had the Disney plus ESPN plus Hulu model going on. That might be worth it to get me back in the game.
3: Well, I do recommend it. What's your final pick this week?
0: My final pick, I'm going to send you down a different streaming rabbit hole. I'm going to send you down to CVS All Access, which is not talked about a ton. But
3: well, we, you mentioned it last time because you were bringing up uh, Survivor.
0: Yeah, Survivor on, is on there. Talk about one the, of their original shows, though. Those don't get much play because people, they they don't have a ton of original stuff yet. They're working on expanding their inventory, but... One of the standouts came out this year, the first season of Star Trek Picard. Are you familiar with that?
3: I am familiar with the fact that it is Sir Patrick Stewart reprising his role as Captain Picard,
0: but I don't know the plot of this new series. Yeah, okay, so the the plot of this new series, like, obviously people in the audience are familiar with the idea that Sir Patrick Stewart plays John Luke Picard on the Star Trek Next Generation and the ensuing movies. We revisit his character about 20 years after the last movie concludes, and basically, he's retired, he's on his vineyard in in Paris, then he gets this new mission, where he has to go out and basically help some androids, like, like he has, who find out, and I'm gonna throw the spoiler warning up here, because this is a pretty big plot twist in episode one that I'm gonna give away here, so... So the point is here is, like, it turns out that he gets sought out by a lifelike android who turns out is the daughter of Data who dies in Star Trek Nemesis. And they're twins. One dies in the pilot. He has to go help find the other one, try and help her. He goes on a mission, and we see that Picard has changed a lot in this universe. He's not, it's not a re- ongoing, basically, this is not a pickup of the next generation going on there. He has his whole motley crew. They're on a random ship. They come together, they all have their own issues to try and work through, which our own prime backstory. We get some seedier size, of the Star Trek universe, which is pretty cool to see because it's not as like, straight laced and buttoned up as some of those shows were. It's edgier, it fits this timeline more. Stewart looks revitalized in this series. He's more into this character now than he was probably at the end of the movie run. I cannot recommend it enough. If you're not a big Star Trek fan, the show is very well acted. A lot of good cameos in there from, the, from it. There's good fan service at points, but it's not on its own a good watch.
3: Interesting. Now, my father was a big Star Trek fan. I'm sure if I threw this on for him, he'd be hooked right off the bat because he was a huge fan of Patrick Stewart. He loved William Shatner as well. I think he just liked all things Star Trek. So I, I got to turn him on it because he's a little
0: older. He's not going to be able to find it on his own. So I'm going to have to help him to find it. Yeah, CBS will actually come the basically the home of Star Trek because they have that show – they have Star Trek Discovery, which was a prequel to the original series. And so it sort of went on its own direction, and glide season three, they're launching a spinoff show. I think about Captain Pike's Enterprise soon. They're launching a, a different show, an animated show about like random people working on the lower decks of a ship. There's a lot of Star Trek content on there if you're interested. Interesting. I'll definitely check it out. So you see, I need to get your dad that CVS All Access subscription.
3: Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll have to. Do, I'll have to do that, and then show him how to do it consistently until he
0: figures it out on his own yeah that might be a bit a challenging zoom call right now yes yes (laughs) well alan thanks for all the time today i really appreciate it before i let you go how can people find on social media keep on with some of the stuff you're up to
3: at alan a-l-l-e-n underscore austin underscore on twitter and then on instagram it's at alan austin sports
0: all right alan thanks for all the time i really appreciate it thanks for having me Mike. All right, and that will do for this week's episode of the Just and the Suffering Podcast. I want to thank my guest, Dan D. Martini, for calling in to discuss the return of the PGA Tour, the golf season starting up again. I want to thank Phil Fred, our legal guy, for calling in to talk logistics, some legal things that could arise from precedents set by the PGA's return, and the great Alan Austin talking golf movies and some of his latest pop culture picks. If you want more stuff like this podcast, including... My interview with Jack McCallum about his memories covering Michael Jordan. A little bit extra last dance sort of adjacent material for you guys. Check out the blog over at justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. Simply search for Just And The Suffering on any of those platforms. You can also, search, obviously, tune in as well, subscribe. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips on YouTube. You can find all of the individual segments on there. So you just want to hear Dan talking golf, that will be on the YouTube channel, Mike Phillips. Feel free to your feedback and star ratings are helping this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And tweet at me this week, if you made it to the end of the podcast, with whatever movie you feel is better. If you are a Caddyshack guy, tweet at the hashtag Caddyshack. If you're like Alan and lean more towards Happy Gilmore, tweet me with hashtag Happy Gilmore. Coming up next week, hockey talk with Pete Considori. Pete's also got us some hockey movies he likes and more. Stay safe out there, everybody. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.